And this conversation is going to be led by Dr. Brent Maximin. Brent Maximin is a professor of psychology. He's a researcher and a writer based in New York City in the United States. His research has primarily, primarily focused on positive identity development in adolescence and emerging adulthood. Born and raised in Belmont, Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, Dr. Brent Maximin believes in the power of people and is active in community activism and grassroots organizing spaces. We welcome Dr. Maximin, who will introduce to us the members of his panel as we talk about this conversation of fostering Black identity in spaces of learning. Welcome and do enjoy. Thank you, Heather. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Um, uh, honored to be able to lead this conversation, and I will do my best to stay out of the way of the much smarter ladies joining me today. Um, so now that I've introduced myself, I will let the other panelists introduce themselves. But first, uh, ritual to start our conversation, a toast to the Black Consciousness Festival and the organizers. It's my Morby. Uh, and Whitney, I'll let you introduce yourself. Um, tell us a bit about your background, what you do now, and also uh, how did you come into your understanding of Black consciousness and tell us what Black consciousness means to you. Thank you, Brent. Um, this is not Moby, but toast. Cheers to you. <laughs> um, I am currently based in the Netherlands. I am a school counselor for an international school here. And my background, I would say I'm first generation American. Um, my Trinidad, my family is from Trinidad. Um, I grew up in New York City for the most of early years of my life then in Trinidad, then in um, South Florida. I uh, traveled and moved around extensively. I went to four different high schools, um, traveled a lot with my mom. So kind of borderline third culture kid uh, situation happening. So working in international school feels very familiar. Um, coming into my own black consciousness as a first generation American, um, being a black American was a very new idea in my family growing up. It felt very new and I felt like I was the only one a lot of the time. Um, and it wasn't until I learned about HBCUs that I felt a pull to understand a little bit more and really connect with who I am as an individual, not by extension of my family. So I was able to attend FAMU, Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, go Rattlers. And I really had an amazing opportunity to connect deeper with my history and understand who I am and how to navigate the world as a black woman um, and gained information and knowledge that I was never taught, um, found information that I felt was actually hidden uh, from us. And it was like finding a jewel and my life changed after that. So my idea of black consciousness is like I said, navigating the world with intention and leading with my blackness and not being afraid or ashamed of it um, and really leading it with pride and inspiring pride in others, even if they're not black, you know, recognizing the beauty and the power and the strength in it is extremely, extremely important to me, especially starting with children. So 
Uh, Hewitt, do you want to tell us about uh, your background and how you came into your understanding of Black consciousness and what it means to you? You're muted, Hewitt. You're muted. My apologies. I was born in Trinidad to a Jamaican mother and a Guyanese father. And we moved to Belize with my two Grenadian siblings when I was three years old in 1996. And presently I'm an entrepreneur. Formerly, I was an economist with the Central, the Central Bank of Belize. And I also was a lecturer, which I'm actually going back to lecturing at the University of Belize and a junior college called Wesley Junior College. And as it go, um, comes to my black consciousness, I would say that it was something that was very ingrained in me from birth. So for example, my friends used to joke that the only white thing in my house would be a little teddy bear in the corner of the kitchen. So all my paintings, I don't know, this one is kind of small, but all my paintings, I grew up with black figures. We were, I would say this household is a very black conscious households where my parents really ensured to instill a sense of power from our background rather than any sort of shame or um, low self-esteem. Thank you. Um, I guess I should uh, give my story as well. Well, I'm Brent Maximin. I am a uh, psychologist and educator uh, here in New York from Trinidad, from Belmont. Um, I guess similar to a lot of immigrants who come to the US from uh, the Caribbean especially, uh, we come into a different understanding of what it means to be Black when we come here, right? Because in, in the post-colonial world, you know, the world that we come from, um, oftentimes, and especially in Trinidad, uh, we're not really taught what it means to be Black, right? And, and like we said in, in one of our earlier conversations, um, I wasn't Black until I was 17 or 18, you know, when I came to the US. Not in any real sense, but in the sense of no one would have called me Black growing up in Belt, you know, and say, well, red man or the red boy. Um, so coming into my understanding of blackness and black consciousness um, has been a journey, right? And, and it's been uh, one of, of embracing it for, for me, uh, because one of the things that we see so often, especially with um, immigrants is that we run away from that label of blackness, right? Because we didn't ask to be black. Blackness is something that is thrust upon us. It's a label that is, that is you know, created and thrust upon us. And it, what Whitney said was so important, you know, about, about embracing that because we have to have an affirmative vision for what it means to be black because so much of defining blackness uh, has been a struggle against trying to change this negative stereotype, trying to change this negative idea. And having an affirmative vision of 
you know, what it means to be of African descent, what it means to be part of the diaspora, what it means to be uh, a descendant of enslaved people, people that were stolen and, and brought uh, to the new world um, is, is so important, you know, because so often we see blackness defined um, as what it isn't. You know, and especially people from the Caribbean, and I know Whitney, you can probably relate to this with your family. Uh, we try to separate ourselves from African Americans, especially. You know that we are somehow different black to them, and that um, you know finding a way to be proud of where I'm from. You know, I am Trinidadian, um, but also not run away from being black because i am um and, you know that has been a journey as well and also um you know heather mentioned briefly that i uh try to get involved in grassroots organizing when i can i try to be active within my community and there's no way to seriously do that in the united states without embracing the black struggle because the, the history of any social movement, any social justice movement in the country um, is the history of the black struggle. You know, like any any movement forward for for civil rights, for, for justice uh, has been born on the black on the backs of of black people, particularly black women in America. Um, so you can't want to be, you know, fight for a better world or be part of change without embracing that. And, um, you know, so it, it's been, uh, for me, something I have enjoyed, but also in the work that I do, something that I find almost impossible uh, to not embrace. Um, and on that note, um, I'll kick it back to you, Whitney. Like, how have you uh, applied um, or connected this idea of Black consciousness, of Blackness, uh, to your work as a counselor? Um, part of my background that I, I didn't mention um, from only because of proximity and memory, right, where the past six years have been me kind of delving into the world of the private international school world. Um, but before that, I worked in nonprofit organizations in Brooklyn. Um, one was a continuing day treatment program in the Bronx for substance abusing schizophrenics specifically. Those are the criteria. And the second was a foster care agency. And then the third was a foster care prevention agency. And of course, I was mostly working with um, not just, not only just black people, but people who really did connect like uh, just arrived Caribbean uh, background, some undocumented um, people, people of color. And a lot of the children were me, you know, they were kids that were kind of te teetering over this line of establishing this, this representation of the, the new life and the new opportunity that their family sacrificed everything to give. And they have to represent that. You, we brought you to America, you're born here, or we brought you here, we gave away, we gave up everything to get you here. Now go be great. And then on the other side, it's don't forget where you come from. So it's like this like struggle of like, okay, how, like how do I explain to my parents like this is the way that we engage, or this is what is expected of me, or this is the weight that I carry when I walk out of this door. 
after working there, I realized that it wasn't sustainable. I had to, I had to, for a personal reason, I had to explore other options. So I ended up going into the international school world. But it was at that point that I realized how much support that children of color actually needed. So that shift was ex extremely jarring. Like I felt like I had abandoned my kids, my, my kids, the people who looked the most like me. Um, and I'll never forget when I was closing out my, my last caseloads, one of the girls, I, I it was like a teachable moment, right? So it was, oh, you know where Whitney's going? I'm going to this country called Qatar. What do you know about Qatar? We we're talking about the fact that it's the only country in the world that starts with Q and little things like that. And one of the girls came back to the teen group I was running and she said, Miss Whitney, I, I did research on where you're going. And I was like, oh, what'd you find out? She's like, they're the wealthiest country in the world. And um, the main religion is, is Islam and all these things. And then she asked me, are you, are you leaving because you don't want to work with poor kids anymore? And mm. when I tell you, that absolutely broke my heart. And I felt like a traitor. I felt like I was abandoning all the things that I was so passionate about for people who looked like me. And I felt like I was abandoning them for people who did not look like me. And it took a couple of years to recognize that I had this really beautiful opportunity, oftentimes being one of the few black people, especially black women in the building to represent, to create awareness, to introduce them to uh, aspects of the diaspora that they may not have ever encountered before. Um, moving away from the tropes and the stereotypes that they see in, in, in the media, social media, um, their only access to black culture is through a screen where they get to see it in real life, all of the aspects of it, where I can be intelligent, well-spoken and all of those respectable things, but I can also be silly and goofy and um, compassionate and empathic and harsh and a little bit of attitude. So it's, it, it's that that black consciousness tied into education really is like, I'm not, I am not working with majority black children anymore. I'm not being quite honest. And sometimes that does genuinely bother me, but there are a few there who you can see, they see me and they're excited and they connect and their parents see me and they're like, okay, cool. And the other children see me and I represent something even more where they have access and questions that they want to ask and have answered and understanding that they want to seek and parents, adoptive parents of black children who I can connect to and talk to about honest, real things. And that is the new requirement of my job now. And I'm, I'm loving it. I, I'm genuinely proud of it and happy. There's a little tinge of guilt still. There's a little bit of, I got to return, you know, go back and get it, go back and go back to them, bring it back to them. But for right now, I'm, I'm really proud of the purpose. Yeah, and that's so important too, right? Because, well, representation is important, it, it matters. Um, you know, sometimes I say, especially when we're talking about politics and stuff, you know, it matters, it just matters the least, um, but it does matter. And it, in spaces of education, it matters as well too. Um, but it's more, it's more than just kids that can see themselves in educators like us, but it's also those conversations that you cannot have without somebody who 
has a similar background as you, you know, without somebody who didn't come from the place that you come from. And, you know, speaking for myself, one of the ways in which I try to imbue this idea of black consciousness into what I do um, is through a lot of the things that you just talked about, right? It's, it's, I try to be, and, you know, I, I don't know if I'm doing it successfully, but I try to be the best of what I benefited from. And I try to also uh, be what I didn't have. Exactly. When I was a, when I was an undergrad, when I was in at university, I didn't have a professor look like me mm -hmm. um, to be able to have those conversations, you know? Um, and when I was in grad school, definitely not. Um, and, you know, I, I remember, so my mentor recently passed away and, and great man was very good to me, but we couldn't have less in common, right? This is a white American man fought in Vietnam. You know, he was telling me things about what it would be like to be a, an academic. It's like, yeah, you know, you live in Miami and, you know, he had a condo on South Beach. It was like, yeah, you know, you could, you get to work in these communities and whatever else. Great. But that was so far away from, you know, from, from my, I was like, listen, I know <laughs> I need to figure out how my fees get paid, you know, help me with that. Yeah. Right. You know, and um, now with my students, like I have, the, you know, I have the chance to have real conversations with them. Um, because yes, it's good to, to teach about whatever your subject matter is. Um, but it's also important to understand that Hey, look, you know, you might not have the network as somebody who is less good than you. you right. know? So you have to make sure that you do everything you could do. And guess what? You might do everything you could do and it's still going to be unfair. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to, to also be able to have conversations about what it's like when you, when my students ask me, okay, you know, what, what is it like to be a psychologist and think about going to grad school and, I want more psychologists. I want more psychology professors, especially black and brown ones. But I have mm -hmm. to have real conversations with them too. I was like, look, you're gonna have to go to grad school. You're gonna be broke for a while. Hello. If you're, you know, if you, you have some students who get sent money from home and some who have to send money home. And that's a very different experience um, as not just a student, but as a young professional, you know, when you enter in the workplace. So those are things you have to take you have to consider too. And yeah. when you don't have family that, that you know, went to college and when you have to navigate spaces as like you were saying with me, you are the black person, you know? Um, I can't tell you how many conferences I went to and probably the same for all of us where, oh, just me then, right? It's like, all right, so. You scan the room, you look for it and yeah. you're like, oh, this, okay, got it. Cool. Okay. All right. Um, you know, and and um, you know, we have those experiences all the time, and that's another thing we have to prepare um, students for as well, because it is not just. I don't just want to be okay. Like it's possible to to be to come from where I come from and look like what I look like and do what I do, but hey, this is how you get here, and when you get there, it is your responsibility to help bring somebody else along after you know so i like when i tell my students these things it's because i 
want them to tell somebody else how many of a years from now, you know, and, and help them um, understand what it's like to be a black educator in, in, in spaces that tend to be, you know, white dominated. Um, and and Hewitt, what about you? How do you uh, how do you connect your your concept of, of of black consciousness into you were previously as an educator and also uh, what you do now um, in business? A major part of being an entrepreneur would be the social aspect. I have a very strong sense of corporate social responsibility, and what's good is that it can in ways be tied into lecturing. So a major part or something that I've noticed growing up in Belize is a lot of people tend to have this issue with skin color. I've been, I've heard people openly say like, oh, I would never go darker than you. Or, you know, this person is the darkest. I so a major part of being an educator and um, that I found myself focusing on in my corporate social responsibility is to really push this concept of where your power lies. And when you, although some people may see your background as a weakness or a limitation in the Caribbean, it may be slightly different and a major, The when we look back to our history and what our ancestors survived, that should be something that should be very a, a source of pride almost. So when I when I'm lecturing or when I especially when I notice someone who's bright, I tend to ensure to push the point that yes, we may have been conquered prior to 1981, but now we need to tap into that power that allowed us to survive, that allowed our, us as descendants to be here and really formulate our own ideas of what we should be rather than allowing society to put that on us. So as a source of what also may have been helpful is to not be in a system that's as oppressive. So for example, the main issue in the Caribbean may be more of a class issue than a, an ethnic issue, but there would definitely be scenarios where you can clearly see ethnic boundaries be, being pushed, or there may be scenarios where you can see that ethnicity plays a role in decision-making. So what's important is to say something especially when you're in a position to say something and to not allow the status quo when it is wrong to continue. I think, I think that's a really interesting point too, because um, again, like we, we, we had talked about in an earlier conversation, like what it, this idea of black consciousness might mean something differently or manifest itself differently. Um, depending on the context, right? And the context of Belize or Trinidad or the US um, or the Netherlands, you know, these, it, it will mean something slightly different. So how, 
I guess compared to um, again, you know, I'm, I'm I am even though I'm from Trinidad, you know, I live and work in the U.S. now, and, and I'm uh, grounded in um, you know the current movement for Black Lives is happening, um, and you know Whitney now being based in in Europe will have a different perspective, but. Hewitt, how do you feel? Because I want to go back to this, you know, the colorism, because colorism um, has been killing our people for uh, basically since the, the colonizers landed here, right? And even though, like you mentioned, uh, there are class lines drawn probably more starkly than uh, race lines or ethnic lines, you know, we still have that legacy of colonialism, right? Whether it's the beauty standard. I'm sure, you know, many people uh, from Trinidad have the same experience of a grandmother or great grandmother talking about what is good here and lightening, lightening up the family or, or elevating the race or something along those lines, which means trying to get closer to European standards, trying to get whiter. Um, so, so how do you see, uh, I guess, Black consciousness in, like, in the Caribbean? Well, first of all, I would have to bring up my paternal grandmother, who was half Portuguese and half Black. And what's interesting about what you said, lightening up, or you need to, my grandmother was the opposite. She would tell her children, you know, their strength. And I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, I'm saying what happened, right? But she was the type to tie her head and dress in the African clothes and her husband would tease her like, red woman, where are you going? Oh, you think you're a, you, you think you're a black woman? But she really instilled that sense of pride and power in the African side of things. So, but that's a, that is a rare case. I would say that that's not something that, that often happens or that's that's not a common thing we tend to hear the opposite where your hair texture may be put down or perhaps it's not considered professional to tie your, your head but when we when we speak about consciousness I remember before I started my bachelor's degree at St. Augustine in UE my father said I want you to go to Trinidad and I want you to see Black people driving Rolls Royces. And I was wondering why, is that really important? But it is, it's, it's very important to see clearly what you can be. I had a discussion with my sister who pointed out the difference between being an immigrant in the United States and being born there to have your, your lineage <laughs> be sourced in America. And what she pointed out was that some other people like to compare immigrants to African-Americans. And she pointed out that that's an unfair comparison because in the Caribbean, our leaders are Black. When I was at the Central Bank of Belize, I was very impressed when I sat down, because this is the first time it's happened to me. I sat in a lecture hall that they had and they had the pictures of all the governors before and they were all well the vast majority of them were black men i think there were two people who were not of african descent and maybe they were but i just couldn't see it myself 
So I would say, while the Caribbean does have its limitation, we, we tend to have a, lot, a high level of brain drain. So the people of the higher classes tend to leave the Caribbean and go to America. And others may seem to be stuck. And we have an issue with education and we have all the, but even the issue with education, I would say that the issue there is a problem with one, liking to read, because it's so rare to find students who enjoy reading. And two, it would be that they place, they naturally place these limitations based on what they've been hearing all their life. I, while I was working at the central bank, one day I stayed late and I was talking to my colleagues and a common thing that would happen on the playground is, oh, where is you black or your hair is seedy? Or, and these comments, I think it's important to stop them in their tracks, first of all. When we hear them, it's important not to repeat them. And also to push the, the sense of power that comes from your gene pool. What was interesting, I have a niece who's older than me and she had twins and they were born prematurely. I think they were born at five months. And the, that was when I found out that the black female is the most likely to survive in a scenario like that. And second to that is the black male. And the least likely to survive is the white male. So when we receive information that affirms our power, it's important to push that one. It's also important that when we hear um, stories or when we hear people talk, when I was um, in primary school, my, the main issue was my hair. They used to tell me my hair couldn't grow or because I was in a predominantly white elementary school. So it's important to boost a sense of self-esteem and that Black consciousness to really empower people. And uh, the, the issue of colorism, there must be some way to correct it. And seeing people who look like you in positions of power and knowing that it's possible, that's a very important part of the movement. I... I love what you said about like that last part is it right there like the representation seeing it putting it in the forefront kind of like leading with that and making sure that any aspect of empowering is is grasped and and held on to tight um and I feel like I don't know about you personally I know you had like a different experience where it was celebrated and and revered and kind of like like put on a pedestal I, I don't believe, I don't, I don't think I grew up with that same experience where representation, while I did spend my formative years in New York City and there was diversity, of course, the, um, the love and the reverence for blackness wasn't there. And I didn't grow up understanding like my hair and how wonderful it was and my gap. The, like one of the stories I always tell is, um, that Ghana, I went to Ghana in 2016 with a really good friend of mine and her best friend is half Ghanaian, half Trinidadian. Shout out to Kemi. And 
I always say that Ghana taught me how to smile. I spent most of my childhood being teased, right? Where they're like, oh, your gap's so wide. I could kick a field goal through it and I could stick a pencil, la la la. And I always felt really ashamed and embarrassed about it. Mind you, I'd smile. I was never a, a woe was me kind of kid, but I definitely felt very self-conscious about it. I had the option to close it, but if it sounded scary, that's the only reason why I didn't close it was I was 11 and it sounded really scary. Fast forward. 2016, I go to Ghana and I'll never forget we're going to this place called Coco Lounge. And to get to Coco Lounge, you have to walk through this, um, uh, like a mini mall, right? Like this little uh, strip mall. And there was a dental facility and they had like the before and after pictures. And I had never seen it in my life. And, and at that point, I think I was what, 31? 31, 32, never in my life have I ever seen this. The before and after were straightening the smile, but keeping the gap, the gap was still there. And it blew my mind. I remember stopping in my tracks and looking at it. And I wish I took a picture of it, but it didn't even occur to me. I was absolutely floored. And fast forward a couple, maybe a day or two later, I was on the veranda with Kemi's dad, who was amazing, absolutely amazing man. And he was talking to us about, you know, the culture and his sisters and brothers came over. And it's like this, it was kind of like a deaf comedy jam vibe, right? Where they're just kind of like throwing jokes and chatting and just laughing. And his sister looks at me and she's like, she has a beautiful diastema, the diastema. And I'm like, what is a diastema? I'm like, girl, what is a diastema? And they're talking, they're talking and they're like, oh, well, get her married easy with that diastema, that smile. And I was like, oh my gap. I didn't even know the scientific term for this thing that I was born with. And it was one of the most empowering moments. And I was grown as hell and still felt like beaming. And not from like a, like a shallow or vanity place where I'm like, oh, I am, I'm not ugly. I never felt like I was ugly, but it was like this validation of like, this is a, a badge of honor. And in certain cultures it is. And I never got the opportunity to understand that because it was hidden, it was kept. And it's exactly what you were saying. The minute that something is revered and honored, especially when it surrounds blackness, it needs to be held to the light and, and shown and, and praised and repeated so that others can take from it. So I always tell that story because there's so many people that are experiencing things like that, whether it's hair or skin color or a diastema that needs, it needs to be honored and, and as often as possible. So thanks for sharing that. I also noticed that we had mentioned the diaspora and there being a clear separation between the Afro-Caribbean person and the African-American. That's that, that may be part of the problem too. We've been, since colonization, the tactic was divide and conquer. And unfortunately, we can still see that that clearly, that tactic has persevered. And it's, it's very unfortunate, but now that we've acknowledged that that's a reality and perhaps sometimes, uh, for example, my sister, when she defended the African-American experience, we need more events of, like that where we have, we, we clearly, are a unit because we would be so much stronger if the diaspora was able to really connect in a meaningful and powerful way. That's why this platform is very important and very powerful. We, I'm sure that what we can attain and achieve would be endless. The possibilities, the potential is boundless. 
Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I think that's so, um, like that, that's such a powerful, powerful point, right? About, about how the, the different parts of that diaspora are pitted against each other all the time. And, you know, I know, and I, and I mentioned this before, but, you know, coming from Trinidad, I see so many other, like first and second generation um, black immigrants separate themselves and define themselves as like partly as being different to African-American, you know, like I am something but not black. And we reject that blackness because, listen, just because we have a different history of uh, race relations, so to speak, right? In like Hewitt, like you mentioned, right? Like growing up, our leaders, people in power look like us. Um, you know, when it comes to, to business, you know, gets more complicated, but obviously in terms of representation, we have a different kind of history to African-Americans um, or, or even black Europeans, you know, for example. But just because we have that different history and because we don't have the same kind of racism, it doesn't mean that we haven't absorbed racist ideas, right? You could, you could be black, you don't have to be a racist, but you could have absorbed racist ideas because that's how we're socialized. Um, and then like, I, I'll give you like a small example is that, um, you know, when I started locking up my hair, I was 17, right? My father's Rasta, this is something I want to do. Um, and I remember by the time people were saying, well, you know, what if you want to go and get a job somewhere, you know, like how, and you have to get a professional hairstyle or whatever. And at the time, my answer to that was, well, by the time I get to where I want to be, my hairstyle wouldn't matter. And looking back on that now, I realized I was on the right track, but I still miss it. Because it's not about individual excellence. And so often that's the lesson we learn, right? That the way out for people of color, the way out for black people is individual excellence, right? That if you are good enough, that's all that matters. Instead of saying, well, we should be trying to make a world that if you're black, your hair doesn't have to be cut low for it to be considered professional. And that's the part that I didn't understand at that time. And that's the part that I understand a little bit better now. So it's not just that, oh, let me be good enough. Let me go and get these degrees and let me go and get this job so that my hairstyle wouldn't, you know, I could get by with having, um, you know, with wearing my, my culture and my heritage on my head. Instead, I should have been saying, I want to be part of making a world where uh, professional is not a byword for white looking or acceptable to white people. Um, and that's, you know, what we have to be as educators, as, as, as people who, listen, it is, it is our duty. It is a charge, right? Like we have to make it better. Um, there are some jobs Listen, every, everybody's job is important to some degree, um, but there are some jobs that are more important. And teachers have an important job. Like it is not, it's not just cashing a check. It is, uh, school is such an important socializing. I mean, it's also cashing a check. Let me. No, no, what check, Brent? Let's be real, let's be very honest. What check? Tell me if there's a check I deserve, let me know. Well, true. No one comes um, into 
reputation for the money. We know this. <laughs> um, yeah, psychology. You don't want to tell you. But yeah, education for sure. Um, but yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, it's besides just a job, is also a, a responsibility. Absolutely. Um, that we have to 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 take seriously, and um, the the. Festival actually had a great quote up from from James Baldwin, who's one of my favorite writers and thinkers, um, where he says, "I have to make you conscious of the things you cannot see." Yeah. And he wasn't referring necessarily to education, but like I, that is how I, you know, think about it and apply it. Yeah. Um, because something like that, you know, an idea like certain kinds of hair is more professional than others. Or your hair, as it grows on your head, is somehow not the correct standard. You have to do something to, for it to be acceptable. Is something we have to make the children and young people that are in whatever whatever way, even if it's a few hours a day or whatever, in our care, Understand. make them aware of. Right. So it's Can not I just. Sorry, go ahead. I I love the fact that in a conversation about fostering blackness in learning spaces and the word respectability which of course I think for some of the most conscious people is triggering the idea of like the respectability of it and being a victim of respectability I can say that in the consciousness and leading with the consciousness and, and honoring it and recognizing it respectability is tied into that right where you have to kind of combat that and it's moments where, you know, in places I've worked, being told, asked when I have a more important meeting where higher ups are coming, board members or going to like, you know, ministries of education, I'm encouraged to be professional. And when I keep digging, like, what does that mean? You know, dressing professionally, like, do I not dress professionally on a regular basis? And they can't answer directly. And I know, um, and at one point, one of my supervisors encouraged the bun. They, they really love that bun, that, that slick bun that you do. And there were times when I felt compelled to do it, right? Where I'm like, okay, job interviews, important meetings. I see myself like the gel and the, the do-rag because they don't know that it takes a do-rag to get that sleek bun, but okay, girl. And hating it, hating myself for it, like feeling sick that I was doing it and I'm trying to ask myself, why, why are you doing it? What is, what do you lose by representing what literally goes out of my head, just like this goes out of my head. What do you want me to do? When my cohorts and my colleagues come in with their messy buns, not, not a word is said, but when the hair that grows out of my head comes out, it's, it's critiqued. It's, it's, criticized it's analyzed and it's only in the past like maybe three four years that I intentionally show up with the head wrap on I, I know I can wear my hair however I want to but I'll show up with the head wrap and then I'll show up with my hair out and I'll show up with the braids and I'll show up with it straight however I want and the comments and the hands reaching out I'll duck and dodge and play matrix that's fine but for me in my heart I know it's more important to endure that because it's important for the kids to see not the adults the adults have the comments but the kids are in awe they have questions they want to understand it you look so fluffy and i'm like yes it's quite fluffy that's right moisturized girl got these edges laid but 
it's the representation and it's it's dispelling the respectability of it all. If you don't re dispel respectability, it's not conscious. That's part of it. Like recognizing the respectability, recognizing what your actions call and what they enforce and what they perpetuate and challenging it every single time. I used to skirt away from the conversations about my hair when people would compliment my hair. One of my friends would always be like, oh my God, you get so defensive when people comment on your hair. And I'm like, cause I'm tired of walking into the building with my hair as it grows out of my head and people, oh my God, wow, wow, wow. I'm tired of it. But now I realize that that's part of the respectability. Yeah, girl, be in awe. This is amazing. Defies gravity. Love it. Love it. Love it. And I mean, that, that, that is so, <clears throat> it's like you said, right? It's not for the adults. It's, it's, for, it's for the kids. And so often we fall into the trap of us as adults, especially in education spaces, by trying to, to fit in. We try to play a role. We try to play a mold. And we don't realize who else is looking at us. I know for me, even... I work with adults for the most part, right? Because it's university students, so it's adults. Um, but, you know, if I wear my hair out, I mean, I don't really have a choice, right? This hair is a lot, so I decided I have it. Um, but even things like, so for example, um, in my first, first job after um, finishing school, St. Mary's College, that school in Trinidad, might have heard of it. Um, city plug. Um, oh, yeah, oh, after, no. <laughs> Somewhere in the far distance, I hear somebody from Fatima bawling out. Oh. <laughs> or CIC, nah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but after finishing school, like one of my first, my first job, I went to this um, workshop and it was a guy there from Ghana and he said something that's stuck with me and this was i don't know how many years ago now but he said something that's, that stuck with me um because he started off by saying you might at first you might be having some trouble to understand me because of my accent but my accent is the echoes of my ancestors so just listen harder and i think about all the time you know because if i am lecturing i might speak more slowly and enunciate more because I'm lecturing. Um, but never in, in, in my years as a professional did I ever hide my accent because I think about it the same way, right? Like this, these are the echoes of my ancestors. So whoever is the Caribbean, West Indian, Trinidadian, whatever person in the class can see, hey, I could be like me and be in that space or in spaces like that, you know what I mean? And, um, play that same role and again in trying to to be what I didn't have like I, I am conscious of that um, all the time you know and I try to uh, connect my experiences to the material and uh, I, I want to ask both of you about challenges you you know you faced in, in your work with with um, you know, imbuing black consciousness in, into what you do. And I know for me, one of the challenges is you end up doing extra work, right? Because the way I was taught a lot of concepts in psychology 
and I, and I, I reference psychology because that, that's my field, right? But the way I was taught and the, and the studies, the classic studies that I know of, now I go back and read about them. I was like, oh, this was done in the 60s, it was all white people. This was done in the 70s, it was all white people. You know, it's the most some of the most famous psychology experiments of all time, most famous studies of all time. Um, all, all white participants, all white male participants. And now, you know, for me as a, uh, an educator, I lead with the limitations, you know, so I can't teach it the way I learned it. So now I have to relearn and I'm not, I'm not saying it's uh, something I shouldn't be doing because it is our duty as educators to be educated, um, but being educated on how blackness and black people have been excluded from um, so much of what is taught. I think that's part of our um, responsibility as well. Even that has been a challenge, um, you know, having to, to, to use a more critical lens has been a challenge too. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I talk about um, in terms of being not just anti-racist, but having an anti-colonialist perspective is teaching the concept of, of groupthink. When I learned group, when I learned about groupthink in a social psychology class in undergrad, they used the Bay of Pigs as an example, you know? And the idea that the US was invading a sovereign nation was an afterthought. You know, it, it was just instrumental to whatever the concept was. But the way I was being taught this idea is that, hey, this invasion should have worked if not for this social psychology phenomenon. And that's one of the things we have to go back and I'll never teach that as a example of this is group thinking action. Because again, you know, we don't just teach the material, what we teach is also between the lines, it's the unsaid, it's in the choices we make, the language we use. So I'm not going to use an example of, oh, so this one time, this uh, imperialist power was trying to invade a, a sovereign Caribbean country, but this is why it went wrong. You know, like the unsaid part that is, is you're, you're teaching something without meaning to teach it. And having to, to re-examine, um, you know, all the ways in which I might have been doing that before or the ways that I could do that in the future, I think has is a challenge and is a, like an ongoing process for me right now, for sure. I love that you shared that experience because I never considered that. Like in my undergrad, I went to an HBCU. So I was, one of my professors is, <laughs> one of my professors used to start our class saying, he would walk in and he'd say, Hotep class. And we had this respond with Hotep. Like he would call Egypt Kemet, you know, like we, we, we studied all the things that you just shared with a different lens, like where we were dis dissecting it, we were dismantling it, we were ripping it to shreds. And a lot of us had never even thought to do that. We had all joined psychology with this idea of Freud and, and the, the Shays Lounge and people sitting on it and like, tell me how you feel. Like this kind of like idea in your head, like I wanna help people. Not really thinking about the foundation of the theory, right? We're only thinking about the practice. That's what, what's in your, your 17, 18 year old mind is the practice. And when the theory came out, we were like, okay, yeah, I heard of Freud and Jung and 
And then this, these black men and women were like, started to like, to shreds, like just ripping it apart. And I, I did the psychology of racism, black psychology. And I had these other courses that of course, you know, moving into grad school, they're looking at your transcript and dissecting, oh, what's this course, what's that? And the validity of the courses or, or employment, the validity of the courses, which that's another conversation for another day. But the, what you're talking about, the, the educator aspect, right? Where when I take my practice now, at undergrad is million years ago, it means nothing anymore, it's nothing. But the experience is understanding the, the methods and the strategies and the approaches that I use are connected to the theory, to the, the mainstream theory, but man, there is a thread of challenge and, and, and anal analyzing that's in it that is, it can't be erased. It can't be undone. And I can't imagine what it must be like on a professional level where you're an educator and, and kind of rooted in this field that you're extremely passionate about that you have to constantly check each time, every time you think about the theories and the ideas and the approaches and having to say, keep that in mind in the back of your mind, like, I'm moving forward with this, but I also have to have like the, the footnotes of it, right? Like mm, the time, the place, the people, and understand that it, it, there is nuance in the language and, and keeping that in the forefront of your mind. It, it sounds like it adds another layer to your practice and to your, your, ex, your experience. Well, as a, excuse me, as an economist, we learn of three different types, liberal, conservative, and radical. And I never mince words with my students to tell them that I am a radical economist. And what I found in the, the workplace, a major issue for me was that I started to feel suppressed in a lot of ways. For example, during this COVID era, it's actually, I find it more healthy to wrap my hair rather than comb it and go out. But if you're working in an environment where you are not allowed to wrap your hair, that makes that gives you a sense of vulnerability to the elements. And not only that, but the policies, as Brent mentioned, we are built on these ideas that come from the colonizers. We we the policies are in economics, we only hear about Adam Smith and uh, but a good thing about being or studying at UE was that I became exposed to other economists like Sir Arthur Lewis. So when we, or in my case, a major challenge was my identity. How could I have months ago been telling my students, oh no, I'm a radical economist. We need to burn it down and build all over again. We're focused on the wrong things. Why are we focused on tourism right now? when our focus should be um, saving lives. It doesn't make sense. We're going to invite the country with the number one cases in the world and the highest growth rate, high, one of the highest death rates, but we're so desperate we need their money. Oh, we can't do anything else. Yes, we can do something else. It's the discipline. We feel like what was taught us is the only way and that is not true. And uh, what's, liberating about being an entrepreneur, what's liberating about being a lecturer, well, perhaps more so, I'm not sure about if, I'm not sure if this would apply to all educators, but in my case, you have a 
freedom to teach in an interesting and uh, positive way. So you can point out and say, hey, why aren't we exporting more? Just because we're importing it from Europe and America. Europe is known for chocolate. Not a chocolate tree grows in um, Europe, but we all want Swedish chocolate Christmas coming up. We want Fur Rocher in our cupboards, but we would not support the local chocolate maker. And that's a problem for me. I told my mother when I was in high school, I learned about this company that produces ketchup in Belize. I said, why do we have Heinz? Why? We should be buying Verena's ketchup, shout out. <laughs> What's the difference in quality? It's all this mental idea of the foreign way is the better way. And we lose sight of what our ancestors would have wanted. And from my understanding, when someone, there was a tribe, um, I know of this phrase Ubuntu, I am because we are. And it seems like we've deviated into this Western culture of uh, I need to be. It's about I need to I need to survive. I need to do what I need to do, but we forget how our decisions could really affect someone's soul. How are so it's also, I mean, if you're able or if you're focused on creating your own arena where you're able to wrap your head if you want to if you or you it's important for you to show that there are better ways of doing things we just because it would take long longer it doesn't mean it's wrong or it doesn't mean it's inefficient it it would be more efficient in the long run and we see in the caribbean I think Trinidad and Guyana would be the exceptions of their dependence on tourism, their over-dependence. Right now, the Bahamas, they had to open, they had to be one of the first countries to open up their airport simply because they, their economy was not built on anything else other than tourism. And this, this outward dependence, that's something that we really need to change. It's so important to look within individually on an individual level and on a macroeconomic level and realize that we have the resources why did they come here if we didn't have the resources africa has the resources latin america has the resources what we need to focus on is owning those resources we need to sustainably sustainably develop these resources and build a new type of wealth in the world you took me to church yes that idea of looking within and not constantly assigning value from the external first of all first of all professor dr denard at famu provided us with this packet and in the packet one of my favorite pages was the comparison of the um familial and community approach of diaspora the african diaspora and um and white people and it compared it line by line right where african diaspora matriarchal patriarchal community individualistic and it went line by line and some of the language was extremely aggressive and it made me uncomfortable at the time because of course you know i have family who are white from europe and you become defensive sometimes it's like oh well you know not my uncle you know oh they're not my cousins but it's the idea 
as you get older, understanding the approaches, like a more, a broader sense of it. And it's exactly that. When did we start to really honor this individualistic, because it's not natural. When I talk about coming from a multi-generational culture where we don't move out at 18, there's not this thing that magically happens where ah, I have to leave now. I had friends that were like, oh, I have to move out at 18. And I'm like, meanwhile, my mother's trying to trap me in this house. In our culture, we don't move out at 18 just because we turn 18. Sometimes we move in and we move others in. I lived with my grandmother and my mother and my aunts and my uncle and my cousin. Like it was, and it wasn't out of uh, a financial need. It was just because that is the natural order. That is how it works. We embrace and we encompass. My grandmother would never be put in a home. What is a home? What is a home? That never happens. So this like embracing this expectation of what the external people who have no clue about our culture and, and, and valuing their opinion is harmful, it's dangerous. And when you were talking, the first thing I thought of was the lack of, of education. You have, you have a, a, an, an honor and a privilege of, of being fed the information, not only from an academic place, but from a familial place where you were constantly surrounded with the idea of like, this is dope. I'm, I'm gonna wrap my hair, this is beautiful. I'm gonna be surrounded by it. I personally didn't grow up with that experience and in education in America, especially, I only, I only attended American curriculum. So whether it was in America proper or in, in the international school in Port of Spain, I was never taught the power, the wealth, the royalty of African countries. I only knew Africa to be poor, desolate, struggling, the nastiest things you could ever implant in people's minds. I was given that and I was about my own people. So imagine what other people think. I, don't be I believe that everything stems from the education right, the understanding, access to information. And if black people, especially you think about the buying power, the black dollar, the black dollar, the almighty black dollar, and the, the way we, we push and, and mold and motivate culture, culture, not just black culture, culture overall, pop culture, any culture, we dominate it, we inspire it, we set the trends, we make it cool, we make it hot, but we don't have the information to know that this is not new, this didn't start with 2020. This is from centuries ago. I, when I went to Ghana, I see these billboards and, and outside of each village, they would have a billboard, several of deceased elders and the date of, of death, date of birth and date of death. And it reminded me of the murals you see in, in um, inner city spaces of, on the bodega, the spray paint, the t-shirts, what culture asks for the program from a funeral, us. And we don't even know where it came from. We do it everywhere, pour a little liquor out for the homies or feed your spirits, feed your ancestors, right? We don't even know the connection because the information was destroyed. It was, it was stopped, we never got it. So that buying power you're talking about, Absolutely, but we have to educate our people to understand where the cocoa comes from. Do you know where it comes from? Do you know that it's us that has it? Do you recognize that the only reason why they would steal and abuse 
and silence a people is because of how powerful they are, that is where it comes from. It's so important. You're absolutely right. But we have to educate. We have to educate them. Uh, that's uh, some really, really good and important points, you know, in, in terms of how do we do that, right? And I'm going to ask in this in a um, hypothetical way, you know, all of us to, to one degree or another present future um, uh, in in the world of education, right? So we're asking this of ourselves um, also. You know, I, I can't decide curricula for everything, um, but, you know, I could do something, right? And, and that has always been the approach I, I've tried to take, right? I don't want, I don't want a seat at the table just so I could show somebody else that they could have a seat at the table too. You know, I want to be a part of something that is making a new table, you know, that already has enough seats for, for all of us to be at. Um, and uh, Zara has a, a actually related question um, to this. And she asks, uh, what are some of the tools that you use with students or with fellow educators to learn more about the breadth of black experience uh, and Black identity and the con uh, contributions of Black academics and scholars? Um, Sarah, that's a great question. Um, and I know for me, uh, it's a struggle, uh, I, have, I, have to be, I have to be honest, because it, I don't teach history, uh, or at least I don't um, nominally, nominally teach history, right? Even though teaching any science or any feel really is always partly teaching history um and for me it's about figuring out how do i uh how do i incorporate the black experience uh without making it the topic you know some days i would like love to go into class and be like hey we're going to talk about um black liberation you know but then my students would ask well this on the test or the test still going to be on lifespan development, you know, so how to make a uh, black lived experience part of, um, you know, what, what we teach and, and in terms of, of resources. Um, yes, yeah, so I have to individually seek out different studies. Um, and sometimes by force, because sometimes the only other resources, some you know, 30 year old study with majority white participants or, or Western participants or only um, American participants. And I see, and, I, and I, I can't then just share that and tell my students, hey, read this and I'm gonna test you on it. Um, or read this and use that to understand uh, what development is like or what psychology is like. So then I have to go and individually seek out, let me look for studies with a more diverse sample. Um, and for, for educators, um, or for fellow educators, for, for colleagues, and I'd be curious to know Whitney and hear your experiences with this as well, but I know for me is you have to seek them out and latch onto them as much as you could. One of my regrets from when I was a doctoral student is that the only black female faculty member was added to my uh, dissertation committee. And it did not occur to me then to soak up everything that she could possibly teach me about being a young black person in academia, 
in psychology. Because, um, you know, tunnel vision, I just want to defend this dissertation and go home, um, you know, get this thing done. And I wish I had souped up more of that. And then now as a faculty member, we have to seek those, seek those places out because we don't have oftentimes in, in academia, those kind of, uh, or in education, we don't have the, that kind of support network. You know, you don't have a, a black teachers or a black professors happy hour or get together or club that you could go and share experiences and lean on each other um, and learn from each other. So you, you almost have to create those spaces on your own. That, that example you offered earlier about, um, well, before I answer this question, just so you guys know, little technical issues happening with me right now. So I might have to jump on my other laptop and hope for the best. Um, but the example you offered earlier about like walking into a room or a space and immediately, I, I'm not, I don't know a, a black person or even a person of color who doesn't scan the room looking for, you know, familiar faces right looking for uh kinfolk so in my my experience in international schools it's a lot harder but the thing that i think black people do every single time is form community because that's that's inherently in us we can't help it we can't avoid it right we connect over just about anything even the proverbial potluck right or the the cookout we we're inviting people oh you can you go to the cookout like and we all know what we're talking about because that's how we operate that's how our brains work so anytime i walk into a space it's immediate like you kind of zone in on who's who and, and where they are so that's part of it right connecting to like looking people and then establishing and kind of like vetting if they're like-minded because all skin folk ain't kin folk right Luckily for me, in every space I've ever occupied, I have connected to mostly Black women, honestly, um, and, and formed a space where we can still communicate and, and prioritize this idea of leading with Black consciousness, even organically, even without really thinking about it, but with intention. So like my friend Christine, I'll never forget, I'm in the office, my first day of work, they picked me up from the airport. This is when I started in Dubai. Picking me up from the airport and took me straight to, the, to work. I didn't get to drop my luggage off. My luggage is still in the car. I'm in 14 hour old clothes and I'm just like, what is going on? And I'm with my white supervisor and this tall, statuesque, stunning black woman with these earrings and braids in her hair pops her head in and asks a question. And I was just taken by her. And as first thing, I went beeline for her. I need to, I need to connect to this woman. Like, what's going on? See what's going on. Come to find out, she's from Brooklyn. She's Haitian. She's a poet. She's just like, just in, immediately saw the the wonder that was Christine. And all of our conversations, or not all, but a lot of our conversations in the space of work were about the the conflict. You know, she's a history teacher. How am I gonna teach these girls, these, these Emirati girls at that? Not just like international students. No, 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 no. This is an all girls school, mostly Emirati, UAE students. They don't know about our history. And what's bigger is that they don't need to know about our history. 
They'll never leave, they're not leaving their country. Not like, not like international students do. There's no push for that. The honor is in bringing it back home and, and establishing it home. It's not, it's not a limitation or um, something to be ashamed of, it's honor to stay here and bring it back home. So it's like, do I, do I, need, to, do I need to push this point? You know, do I need to challenge the student on this on this topic? Like it's this, this, this conversation is constant battle, but connecting with each other allowed us to have these conversations in a safe space where we could check each other and, and challenge each other and have these important conversations. And luckily for me, every space I've worked in has had that. And currently I'm in the diversity, equity and inclusion task force. And this is probably one of the, spaces that feels the least diverse like it's kind of it's very aggressively apparent where I am like I know when I walk in the building parents students staff alike recognize that I'm new they know they see me and I've never been so visible in my life it's it's anxiety inducing at times it makes me nervous but still I've managed to find this little family of not only black women women of color and white women who have adopted black children. And it's like this little enclave that we can have these safe discussions still. They're the, the only people that I shared this with, like, hey guys, I'm doing this thing. I would never do that. I would never share this in, in a professional setting ever. But it's that, it's, it's making those connections, vetting their safety and then holding onto it for dear life because that's the only way to measure yourself because part of our my role I'm, I'm an educator but it's counseling right so there's there's this really huge part of of networking and connecting and and making sure that you're checking yourself checking your bias making sure that your best practice uh, duty of care all those things and part of that for me is making sure i stay with my finger on the pulse of what's relevant what's appropriate what's happening what my responsibilities are and as a black woman, I can't get that from white people. I can't, I have to get that from my people. And it has to be a safe place. It has to be a place of education and understanding and, and passion and care and recognition. It has to be that. So that's the only way that I'm able to establish those spaces in where I work and, and, then, and then taking that and connecting it with the students. So a lot of the work that we do now with the DEI group is with the students in mind. It's the staff as well, of course, creating and fostering that environment in a professional sense. But mainly, how does this impact the students as well? How does this create the new generation of people who are gonna be doing the hiring, who are gonna be doing the leading, who are gonna be doing the connecting? How do we expand their scope and their understanding and, and ability to check their own bias? Because that's, key, no matter what race, ethnicity they are, they have to know that. And the only way to know that is to foster an environment that leads with it. I would say informally, that's how most of my adult conversations would go. There's, I am not part of a group where we would meet every Saturday. And so I would say that in my case, it's more informally. And while I'm teaching, perhaps to make it entertaining because economics isn't a subject that many students tend to enjoy, but 
when you're able to pull on personal experiences or for example, yesterday in Belize was Garfuna Settlement Day. So what would be the norm in Belize would be to dress in African clothes or specifically like the Garfuna people. And from there, it would be very easy to implement a discussion about the economy of the Garinagu, for example, who's, uh, who may not spend or their focus may not be on spending as much, but to go back to the earth and uh, fish and grow their ground foods. And from there, you can move into a discussion about health economics or nutrinomics which would also, so what I'm saying is as a lecturer, there, there are many ways to be creative and try to pull on or include a discussion to reaffirm or to highlight the African experience or the Afro-Caribbean experience. Uh, absolutely. And that is actually, uh, that leads well into uh, another question from that we got from an attendee uh, who asked, how do you go about dispelling internalized racism? Um, and they say, for example, somebody who tells you that Creole is not a language. Um, look, that is um, hard, right? Because School education is not the only place where learning takes place, right? For, for a certain period of your, your childhood and your adolescent, school is, is one of the most important socializing contexts, but it's not the only one. And for me, working with adults, by the time somebody comes to me, they have 18, 19, 20 years of learning for good, bad, or indifferent already. Um, and even when you work with younger children, even if, if even if the youngest children you could be working with, um, they still have years of socialization built in. You know, they might still uh, uh, somebody a five year old or a six year old might still say, um, "picky here" or "nappy here" or "too dark." Um, you know, think denigrating terms for uh, blackness and 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 black features. And I think you. You can't uh, unlearn all those things for a student or for a child or for a, a young person, um, but you correct it when you see it and you challenge it at every possible opportunity. And it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, make anti-racism, including anti-colonialism, um, even if it's not part of your subject matter, it should be built into your curriculum as an educator, right? Because no matter what subject we're teaching, we're teaching it in a racist, colonialist world. And part of unmaking that world should be a part of your everyday working experience. Um, you know, correcting these uh, terms or pushing back on things or asking, well, why is this the standard? You know, why is this the right way to do this? So why is this the default for, again, going back to psychology, parenting style or morality or, um, you know, what, what it means to be self-actualized, 
even th these are things that, that you learn in, in introductory psychology classes and all these things are through a, a white capitalist colonialist lens and we learn them without realizing and then you know next thing you know we go into education we get the same textbooks or the newest edition of the same textbooks written by the same um, old white people and then we teach in the same way so it, it can be enough for us to be us if we're teaching the same things the same way right like I don't want to learn the same uh, ideas you know that 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 have this thread of racism and this this thread of holding you know the colonial standard as the gold standard I don't want to teach that I don't want to be the black teacher teaching that I want to be so it, it can't be that I'm teaching the same thing but I just look different and that's good enough which is why I say representation matters but it doesn't that's not the end of it right it can't just be that I look different and I teach the same thing you have to teach something uh different and yeah look is work <laughs> because you don't have the privilege to look here's a textbook here's a syllabus um figure out some assignments we'll teach it it means you have to question everything because you have to you get handed a book you you, you get handed a, a study your default approach sometimes has to be well some probably wrong with this you know this is lacking this excludes my people you know this doesn't take into account black people people from the caribbean you know th there's not a single um this this concept that we take for granted there was no studies done in it outside of north america and europe um so you know so i, I start calling things again i lead with the limitations it's like oh here's a study that you know um we've been learning about for 20 years but it was only done with white people in the 60s um and you know that is kind of how we 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 push back on those you know some of those ideas that that all of us and you know us in this room we are part of the conversation to try and um move things forward uh but that doesn't mean that we are immune from any of these things right like we have my still unlearning things uh that i realized that i understood wrong before that i was taught incorrectly before whitney how about you man when you were speaking the 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 aspect of challenging the information that you're literally given to lead with, right? Like where are we talking about curriculum, um, topics, or even like, uh, so the inside joke with some of my friends is like, you know, I'm living in, I'm living in Europe now. Never in my life did I ever think I'd live in Europe. Never in my life did I think I would live in Europe. My plan after Dubai was Lincoln Community School, Ghana. I was going to Ghana. That's where I was going. Things switched up, ended up here. Cool. The joke is I'm in the white motherland. When they say go back to your country, they mean it. They mean it. And, and in America, there's a quick retort, you first. Another retort, find out where you got me from and send me back yourself. But here I'm like, wait a minute, okay. The culture, the, the traditions, the language, everything is like base core theirs. And it's what you're talking about is how do we challenge the inaccuracies or challenge the 
like what you were saying about the Bay of Pigs, the glaring inappropriateness, the glaring harm in the example. I can't use this as an example because it literally violates my entire humanity. It, it violates the humanity of an entire people. It is not just about this social aspect of it, this cute, neatly tied up um, example. It's not that. It is, it's layered. It's so complex. And I find myself in spaces now, in a school now, where we are challenging some of the traditions of the native people of this land and being met with a lot of resistance. And there is a courage and a bravery and a, a resilience that is required to do that. And, and that's the part, like the part for me is we can note what's inappropriate, what's wrong and, and what needs to be changed and what we need to actually lead with if we're centering black consciousness if we're centering honoring the the black experience and and representing black spaces but are we brave enough are we strong enough are we do we have the bandwidth for it because for me dei work super important challenging inappropriate um aspects challenging a lack of anti-racism challenging all those things super passionate about totally i'll sign up for all these panels yeah do i have the bandwidth for it pandemic can't see my family living in a strange country with strange language dealing with a partner life work do i have the bandwidth for it are there days when i walk into the building and i'm like you know what girl go ahead and put the black face on i don't care i don't care i'm tired are there moments like that absolutely it's, it's what Huet said earlier. Are we going to come together and support each other and, and empower and link and make sure that we hold everybody, each of us accountable, check each other's respectability? That takes work and commitment and intention. That's the biggest part of it. It's the education of it, understanding this is wrong, this ain't it, deciding we're gonna, we, not me, we are going to do something about it, finding the we, and then actually doing it. That's what it is. And that's a lot of work. This is only the beginning of the conversation. This is like the ice, tip of the iceberg. That's what it is to me. I would say identifying the challenge would be the first thing. First, when we're, um, in order to, correct our own bias, we have to take the time to note and acknowledge it. And for some people, some people don't have the time. When we are faced with life and this fast pace that we've been, that's been thrust upon us, we need to find time to be silent with ourselves and ask hard questions. For example, I still relax my hair. Why do I feel the need to relax my hair? Why? Do I feel like my natural hair is too difficult for, for me to handle? Why am I not willing to find the time to do that? We need to be honest with ourselves and we need to find the time to acknowledge what it is. If we say, oh, you know, I think that you may be too dark for me. I don't, I usually go with the, you have to ask yourself, why do I feel that way? and be honest enough and be brave enough to have discussions and admit that to other people. You know, although I am proud, I still struggle with this issue or that issue and in community, we can find more power and hopefully understanding and elevate ourselves to a point 
where we're more courageous and proud and able to em embrace ourselves and our history. Uh, that is a perfect point to end on. Um, in the community, we build power. And the, the one of the things that I, something that I heard this week that stuck with me is that, you know, the way to keep power is to give it away as soon as you get it, you know, and not just the, the power to, uh, to others, to, to colleagues, to students, um, to make change, um, but the power also to, to be vulnerable enough to have that space to, to, to question ourselves, to push back, um, to share resources, you know, that is how we, uh, how we build power. Um, thank you so much, Hewitt. Thank you, Whitney. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, and thank you so much, Brent, um, for having guided this conversation. Thank you to Hewitt and to Whitney for having participated, having shared your experiences, and having helped us to understand more fully um, the, the challenges that you have in your own spaces, in your own communities, et cetera, um, with, with fostering Black identity in, in places of learning and, you know, um, sharing with us the importance of, of, of having these conversations with the children, um, because they are the ones who eventually are going to take all of what we've been discussing forward. Um, yes, the adults are important, but it's even more important to talk to the children and to get them to change some of the mindsets and some of the institutionalized racism that has existed for so long. Yeah, thank you all very, very, very much for a wonderfully brilliant conversation this evening. And for those of you who have missed or those of you who would like to see again some of the conversations and some of the cultural activities that we've had, you can join, um, you can check out our website um, and for the future events. So the website has the calendar of events and you can also check our YouTube channel and our Facebook channel for um, videos of past events that we've had so that you can join some of the conversations, revisit some of the thoughts and you know take notes about how we go forward. <laughs>